economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. My name is Peter Jacobson. I'm the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Here today, we are without our graduate students, but we will trudge on without them. <laughs> With me, I have Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics here at Ottawa University. And we want to talk to Russ today about his trip he just took to Zimbabwe. Here's some, maybe some stories, some insights that Russ gains. Go ahead and let us know what happened, Russ. All right. So yeah, our uh, fearless president, who's originally from Zimbabwe, has lots of connections still there. And so we set up a, uh, there was a conference of sorts with an institute that we're looking to collaborate with over the long haul. And then we had some other activities, but that was one of the main things we went over for. So as part of that presentation, I was presenting on kind of economic freedom and entrepreneurship for Zimbabwe or as it relates to Zimbabwe. So I ended up learning a lot of things, both experiential through being there, as well as researching different things for this presentation. And uh, first of all, let me say, you should all go to Zimbabwe. We ended up having the opportunity to go to Victoria Falls, which puts Niagara Falls to shame, even though I haven't been to Niagara Falls. So, but, uh, <laughs> but other people have told me that that was true, that have been to both. I mean, it was rainbows and I was just waiting for a unicorn or something to pop around the corner. It was so gorgeous and impressive of a natural, natural beauty and did a safari. And so anybody that wants to do that type of thing, Zimbabwe is great. You do have to be a little bit aware of some of the currency things, which is what we're going to be talking about today. But you can feel fairly safe going there. I mean, you know, just to safe, even safer than some of the other places I've traveled to. There's not a lot of crime and violence and, and uh, great people, very friendly, just going about their lives. And part of the thing that plagues Zimbabwe that frustrates me as an economist interested in development, economic development, is how we could have such educated, you know, nice people willing to work, entrepreneurial mindset, I guess, would be a way of describing it. During the Mugabe regime, which was turned somewhat oppressive and corrupt and so forth, uh, he still valued education. So I was impressed to learn the, the levels of education that really all people throughout the country go through. Um, the other nice thing is that they're all English speaking. So uh, that's a nice feature as an American going to visit a developing country where I've been to India. That's not always the case. And some of our travels to Guatemala where it's Spanish speaking, even though I'm trying to, to learn Spanish. So it was nice to be able to communicate with people of all levels there when you're when you're visiting. Yeah, so, so, so not to interrupt us, but no, I, please. I, I think you raised an interesting sort of curiosity. You've kind of already mentioned like the the natural features of, of Zimbabwe of the land. Yeah. You mentioned the education. When you ask people who haven't studied economics, like, what do you think makes a country rich? A lot of times the answer is like, oh, natural resources or, oh, people have to be educated. Yeah. And it turns out that at the very least, those things aren't enough. Right. So I, I think you kind of alluded to maybe some, some government or some policy problems intervening in that. Yeah. The, the government is just too large, I guess, as, 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 as a fraction of the overall economy. 
Zimbabwe is very resource rich. Our president, Regis, will tell you that back in the day, in the 80s and 70s, they were fairly prosperous too, and, and the Zimbabwe dollar was strong. They're loaded with gold and other minerals, and so they do have a lot of potential that way. The, the climate is nice. It was it was great uh, place to visit that way as well. It's in some ways it sounds like sort of a parallel to Argentina, you know, who, the richest country in South America for a long time, and yeah. then kind of all fell apart. And Venezuela being oil rich and, and or, a disaster. Well, well, I meant Venezuela. Yeah. Well, Argentina's Argentina. not too far off yes, from that. Yeah, that happened earlier. Yeah. 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 Similar story. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Brazil comes to mind too. I mean, there, there's just yeah, lots of examples. And then you've got countries like uh, Hong Kong, which I guess maybe I shouldn't say country, but economy of, of Hong Kong that has basically zero natural resources. And from 1960 till today has surpassed the United States right. in terms of per capita income. And so, yeah, I think the the evidence that we talk about here at the Gorton Institute is, is uh, huge, that these institutions matter in a big way in helping to bring prosperity to the poor. And, and, and we look at the poorest of the poor with some of the stuff that I went through in my, in my presentation as well. So one of the first indications that I saw things were messed up <laughs> is we took a drive through downtown Harare, which is the capital of Zimbabwe. And that's where we were spending uh, most of our time. We, we did a side trip to Victoria Falls, which is more of the tourist area. So as we're traveling through downtown, I couldn't help but notice the lack of any American or global, I should say, franchises of any sort. The first, the only one I saw was KFC, so Kentucky Fried Chicken, and the Yum brands of Pizza Hut was the only other affiliate. Hmm. I didn't see any Taco Bell or anything, but wow. literally that was the only one I saw going through the main area. And when you visit other developing countries, of course, Mickey D's has planted yeah. themselves around the globe and Burger King and, you know, other franchises of, of various sorts. And so that immediately made me think, okay, they're not coming here because of the institutions in place, because of the hyperinflation that went crazy and uh, crashed the Zim dollar back in 2008. And then the, the most recent thing that's gone on is the, the, the country basically dollarized after, which means that they use the United States dollar as their medium of exchange. It is basically their money. And then the new president who came on board in 2017 after a soft coup of Robert Mugabe decided the Zim dollar was important. We, might, we need our solidarity, blah, blah, blah. And that's usually code for I want to spend money that I don't have. And that's ultimately what's gone on. And huh. so in 2019, they established the Zim dollar at some sort of exchange rate and then have subsequently gone on to print off money. Um, for some projects, I think even President Reg thought that the new president has made progress in terms of building up some infrastructure. I've read a few articles that some of the roads and bridges, you know, that type of infrastructure has improved. So perhaps some of the money printing has gone to intended sure. places, but then there's also talks of some of his crony buddies, golfing buddies or otherwise that have been the benefactor of some of that uh, government spending as well. So corruption still looms in the in the current regime, and uh, maybe that's pretty difficult to, to avoid. So um, I saw the Reserve Bank. I had to kind of secretly take a picture of the Zimbabwe Reserve Bank, and I'm like, here's where all the money's printed. <laughs> uh, that's right, downtown Harare. 
then on a, another tour, maybe it was the next day or something, there's an industrial park and it was noticeably vacant. And the person who we were riding with said, yes, this, this industrial park was, you know, doing really well before with manufacturing of certain things. When so, you say before, what do you mean? What's I think it was, well, certainly back in the early 2000s before the hyperinflation. Yeah. And I think it slowly started to build up again. And then now they've been having problems, but it never recovered back to where it was before, where there was people working in this area. They would commute from other places like a normal urbanized you know, town that's that's doing all right. Yeah. And, and to, uh, to lend some credence real quick to your money supply comment, it looks like just from the numbers that I'm I'm seeing that the M2 of Zimbabwe has uh, basically more than doubled in the span of a little over a year. Yeah. So they, that even, you know, the United States has increased by 33%. This is a 100% increase uh, yeah. at least. So yeah. at some point, we should take a step back and talk about the monetary history of Zimbabwe, like explain the 2008 so that. Yeah, let me let me. Uh, I, I'm planning to circle back to that too. So sure. I, I want to get a couple of these stories out, and then we'll talk yeah. some of those details. So in this industrial park, what it spoke to me was that even the locals that maybe were prosperous business people aren't reinvesting, right? And so um, you know, part of the things we talk about here at the Gordon Institute and in our economics classes is the long-term thinking of investment. Uh, the a business owner has a 5, 10, 15, 20-year window that they're looking at of if I'm going to invest my hard-earned money into building and machines and building up a business, they want a reasonable expectation that there's going to be a rate of return and that their either profits or property won't be confiscated in some way, shape, or form. So we didn't see international investment. We didn't see local investment. And so now the result is a bunch of small businesses, small vendors kind of scattered around that you kind of see in a lot of developing countries. And then presumably big business that is cronied up with the president. And the number one was Pepsi. Again, I don't want to talk too bad about Pepsi, but the kind of the word on the street was Pepsi just entered the market within the last few years. They have a manufacturing plant. Coca-Cola has been there. So they do bottle and produce soda and soda products, uh, both in Pepsi and Coke. But one of our drivers, I, I just said, yeah, I'm guessing Pepsi kind of, you know, lined the pockets a little bit of, the, and he basically agreed with that, that somehow Pepsi got in through, let's just say the normal means of a country like that, which is to, in some way, shape or form, compensate the government. Maybe it came through taxes, maybe, you know, who knows, but it might've been somewhat transparent, but nonetheless ends up in the hands of the leader. And then the leader has... Uh, discretion on how those are spent. And that, so that's kind of corruption. My point with saying that is that sometimes corruption may be above board to some degree. And then once the money comes in, then it disappears underneath the table somehow uh, to other places. And so a lot of what we take for granted here in the United States just doesn't happen in other countries because of these fundamentals that we're, that we're trying to teach. So then it's kind of to, before I jump into, and maybe the second half, we'll get into the implosion here, but we're riding with Alice and she is a uh, somewhat of a, a small business owner. I didn't, we didn't really get into details, but she told me the bank of Zimbabwe, the president of Zimbabwe just banned all loans from banks, loans wow. to small and medium enterprises, like all loans, like no more loaning. <laughs> that's what banks do. Right. And uh, so this kind of caught me off guard. I'm like, 
I wonder if she really understands what it was or not. And sure enough, Alice was was dead right. There's there's articles that I've now gone back forth and, and looked at. And the president essentially stopped banks from loaning out money because of this differential between the black market exchange rate and the stated exchange rate wow. from the government. And so he's pointing fingers, thinking that it's the uh, trying to find a scapegoat, basically. And so they he put a policy in place just so banks can't make loans anymore. Sorry, people. Wow. I mean, what does that say? I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. It's, it's insane. And so that'll kind of bring us, circle us back here to some of what happened with the history. I think I'll go ahead and start off that and then I'll, I'll try to end with some sort of cliffhanger going into the second half. But so around 2006 and into 2007 and eight, the government continued to print off money at exponential rates. And within the time period of around a year, the Zim dollar was worthless. And so here at the Gorton Institute, we have some of those. We had our largest donation. Unfortunately, it was in Zim dollars that are no longer valuable, but we had $160 trillion donated to the Gorton Institute. Now, the GDP of the United States is around $23 trillion, just to give you an idea. So I have a single bill that is a hundred trillion dollar bill. And it couldn't even buy you a can of Coke back in 2008. And so those irresponsible policies of uh, Robert Mugabe at the time led to the collapse of their currency and then ultimately led to this dollarization. Justin, do you got anything else? I mean, I don't know much about the distant history if that's what you're getting at, but with the currency in Zimbabwe and inflation, or do you, what were you thinking? No, yeah, I was I was talking about the you know the run up to the 2008 yeah. crisis, just okay. because I think it's it's rare to have these events in a single country so closely related to each other. And granted, we're not at currency collapse. Yeah, yeah, but and and I'd, I'd like to do a little more research personally on Mugabe, but the story that I heard or the perception that I have is. He was kind of a populist leader that rose to power, power to the people, you know, we're going to empower the little guy, you know, the kind of the typical uh, stuff like that. And once he got into office, then uh, I guess it didn't pan out because I think uh, power is a very seductive thing. Now, surprisingly, he's still revered by people in the in the country. So if you fly in there, you'll fly into the Robert Mugabe International Airport. Hmm. And so that kind of surprised me. I thought he maybe didn't have that good, but he was that good of a people person. And then I'll, I'll tell you another little story on how he might have been able to rise to power because he was just an awesome speaker and spoke to the average Joe in a, in a way that got him elected, which I think is interesting. So we'll pick up there and get into a little bit more on their uh, areas of economic freedom in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University has created a student competition on classical liberal ideas. How can we get high school students, high school teachers, and college students engaged in ideas of free enterprise and freedom? Well, philosophy, politics, and economics is a new major here at Ottawa University, and we have created a PPE league where students compete on exactly that. If you or somebody else have students interested in those ideas and joining our competition, Contact Russ McCullough today. Okay, so we're back. So the story I left off with was how Mugabe kind of maintained power over time. And it was it was real interesting. I think Colin is the one that the heads up this institute told me about this. 
So about 60% of the population in Zimbabwe is rural. And Mugabe was a wonderful orator and, and could really command a presence. You know, kind of, I, I, I guess when, when he spoke that way, I thought of Obama or Bill Clinton or whatever, you know, some of the politicians that have had kind of a silver tongue. And what he would do, he, he'd go into local villages and ask the person who was driving him, like, okay, what's the problem in this village? Like, what, what do they suffer from the most? And then he would kind of, uh, his message would be catered towards helping that village. And that's what he did kind of systematically. And so he really didn't pay much attention to the urban vote. And that even though his policies might've been contrary to what some of the urban, let's call them urban educated people might've maybe had more, you know, free markets and whatever type of aspects, he would capture the relatively uneducated rural people with helping them with their problems. And since they made up 60% of the vote, that helped maintain him in office for a long period of time. And then I think eventually it, it grew into voting boxes being corrupt and, and other things like that. All right. So how does this uh, weird exchange rate impact? This took me a while to learn this because I could not figure it out from reading some articles until I went fishing. So in Zimbabwe, I hooked up with Fisherman Joe was our guide. And he had asked if I could pay in American dollars. And I was running a little bit low on dollars. So I kind of would have preferred to have used my uh, debit card for him. And then he went on to explain why he would really, he'll give me a discount even if we paid cash. And so there's capital controls. So let's say American goes fishing with Joe. Joe, let's, let's just use a thousand dollars to keep the number. It wasn't a thousand, by the way. It was, it was awesome. That was uh, 160 bucks a person. But so to keep the numbers easy, we, we charge a thousand dollars. And Joe would get 30% access to that right away. And so he could pull it, but the government would have capital controls that he couldn't take anymore. And then furthermore, when he goes to draw the money after a period of time has elapsed, then he's subject to the formal exchange rate. Um, so what's happens in this economy and happened in other economies is that there's a black market rate that evolves when the government just dictates what the rate should be. And so people on the streets are very savvy to this. And, and you know, the real economy is going to win one way or the other, usually. Right. Um, and unless it unfortunately leads to uh, death and violence, which happens in other countries as well. But the underground economy kind of emerges. And so what's going on in Zimbabwe today is that the American dollar has about twice the purchasing power on the black market than it does on the formal market. Wow. And so when Joe goes to get money from his account later, he has to use the formal rate of exchange, not the black market rate of exchange. And so that cuts the remaining, let's call it $700 for my example, in half. So he's only getting $350 compared to what the real economy is, which should have been at half that rate. And so this is what went on with other purchases too. I am a big fan of Inveroche gin that got recommended to me by another economist, Bob Lawson, who works on the Economic Freedom Index. And I went and paid way more money than I even dreamed of at the time to buy this because uh, you can't buy it in the United States. And what I found out was that the grocery stores and other places, of course, have to have it stated in RTGS as the, as the formal currency rate, even if you have American dollars, so that when the cash register converts it from 
the RTGS to American dollars, you're getting the government stated formal rate. Oh, okay. And it basically doubled the price. Wow. So I paid, well, at one point I paid even more, but let's just call it $65 for one of this bottle. And then when I was traveling back home through South Africa, I bought it at the duty-free store for $26. Wow. Just to give an example of the same gin. And it was because of this weird thing going on with the exchange rates and the and the government trying to control the, the system. And how much was the one you bought on the black market, Russ? <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to get into those details. No, um, but really the black so the black market you can go and exchange from money changers sure. and they'll they'll do the black market rate. So there's a there's a pretty healthy exchange system that has emerged, you know, from, from our emergent order, spontaneous order. Yeah. It just emerges from institutions that are disastrous. The real economy does eventually make its way out. So that was a that was an eye opener from from fishing and from from gin. So all right. So what where does where does Zimbabwe rank in the world? Well with the Economic Freedom Index, we that we go around and I've spoke places domestically and, and in Guatemala and, and India. And so there's 165 countries currently in the rankings and Zimbabwe is at 161. Wow. <laughs> 161. And this is the thing that just is really painful when I when I go back and look again. Remember, we've got people that are happy, entrepreneurial, fairly well-educated, and the outcomes that they have because of the institutions in place is, is really sad. So yeah, 161, uh, there's other African countries like the Congo is 159, uh, Sudan was 163. So if you look at the, the economic freedom map, most of Africa is in the lower quartile. Uh, the, the bottom 25% of all countries. But then what makes Africa interesting is that Nigeria, South Africa, and Kenya are in the third quartile. And then Botswana is kind of the shining star in Africa. They are ranked 45th in the world. And so they are right on the border of being in kind of the most free. And the results of that is astonishing. I went and dug up some data on uh, income per capita. And this extended to the poor as well, but the story is, is compelling, I think. When back in 1982, the gross domestic product per person in Botswana was 1,054 and in Zimbabwe was 1,073. And so all of this, by the way, is, is in American dollars. It's been adjusted for what economists call purchasing power parity. So we can think of the translation of that into, I like to use hamburgers in class. So 1,054 hamburgers versus 1,073 hamburgers. And at that time, Botswana started developing policies that were more favorable to economic freedom. So the first one of those is the size of government. What fraction of government spending does uh, the government make up? Unfortunately, in Zimbabwe, it's, it's off the charts. They rank the lowest at zero. Even among the fourth quartile countries, uh, they're, they're awful. So basically, all of the investment that comes in is government investment. The second category is with property rights. How is the police system and the court system, uh, is it corrupt with bribery? Do police show up on time if you call them? And when I presented this to the, to the students that my audience that was there, you know, they kind of laugh like, uh, yeah, good luck calling the police. They don't, even, they don't even bother with it. So 
protection of property rights is awful in Zimbabwe. Uh, they rank very low, even lower relative to the fourth quartile countries. And then the third, the third area is our international trade. So are they able to trade with their brothers and sisters around the world? And, and Zimbabwe is not too bad in that, in that area. And then finally, uh, regulations. Do small businesses, how easy is it, is it to start up a business? Do you have to go through government bureaucracies starting up? And so Zimbabwe is really bad in all those categories. That's how you get to be 161st out of 165 countries. And of course, the inflation was as the sound money category is the was the one we've already spent a bunch of time on. That was awful. So Botswana started to change these policies back then. And ultimately now in 2020, gross domestic product per person in Botswana is $6,404, while Zimbabwe is still at $1,214. So five times the purchasing power effect over that period of time of about 40 years, 30, 40 years, is the impact that it's had for Zimbabwe or for Botswana over Zimbabwe. And, and Botswana is a neighboring country is one of the reasons that I think this is compelling. Uh, so is South Africa and Mozambique and uh, Zambia. And so all of this evidence really shows how Zimbabwe could be a lot better. And so one of my things that we're doing with the Institute is uh, to try to educate the average Joe on how what a, a good leadership would look like. What do good institutions look like? And, and, and I think part of the messaging that needs to go out is do what your neighbor did. <laughs> do what they did in Botswana. Botswana is now up to the average income per capita as South Africa. South Africa has remained fairly stagnant over time because they're, they have a lot of policies in place that aren't very... Uh, healthy for economic freedom. But relatively speaking, I think they you look to South Africa as being an example of, of what, what to try to be. But uh, Botswana is actually probably the better example. So we've seen the growth in per capita income. And then along with that, I have to say, I went through a number of things in the talk, but infant mortality rates, eternal mortality rates, the amount of poverty, people living on $2 a day, $5 a day, all of these areas are, are greatly better in places like Botswana compared to Zimbabwe. Yeah, and Russ, I, th I think what you're summarizing, you know, th this is like a very, in, at least in recent years, very consistent finding in economic research. And so one of the most famous papers in the economics of development and really economics more generally in the last 20 years has been a paper by Darren Asimoglu, Simon Johnson, and James Robinson. This paper is called The Colonial Origins of Comparative Development. It's an empirical investigation. And basically what this paper says is from 2001, it's garnered, by the way, 16,000 citations. And listeners, to give you an idea, most economists, I'd say 90% of economists will never get that many citations on any of their, on all of their papers combined in their whole lives. I mean, that's an enormous amount of citations for one paper, uh, probably the, the top percentile. And what they find is that if you look at different countries in Africa, the countries that had conditions that were very hostile to the people who colonized them, those countries tend to be poorer today. And the theory behind it is, is that Europeans who settled in certain countries, they either set up, they could set up two types of institutions. One was an institution that protected property rights and could sort of reap the benefits of it. And so these are long-term thinking institutions versus extractive institutions. 
And so countries with very hostile environments, specifically the variable they use in this was the number of malaria carrying mosquitoes. Countries with very hostile environments like that, the, the colonists set up very extractive institutions. Which and is extractive growth. meaning stealing. Yeah, stealing. Uh, <laughs> like, like you could, you like could either their resources, it, ship it, them off. If you're the government, you could make money two different ways. One way is by making your people so productive that a small tax gets you a ton of money, and so that would be sort of a productive, you know, government. We'll say, or you could set up a system where you take all of the very little that people do develop. And so the thought is, well, in these hostile environments, you don't want to spend a whole lot of time building you know, political or real infrastructure. And so you just take as much as you can very quickly. Whereas in the friendlier conditions, they were able to build up these long-term institutions. In fact, what they find in this paper, that's kind of the shocking result is once you control for that effect of institutions caused by the mosquitoes, actually the countries in Africa don't have lower poverty rates than the rest of the world, which is a pretty astounding finding. In other words, the argument of the paper is that institutions determine Africa's growth or lack of growth, depending on the country that you look at. So this institution, especially of economic freedom, which is the specifically what Russ is talking about, these rules really are what determine economic growth, not geography, which we talked about, not education. Yeah. Those things can help, but ultimately those things can't do what they need to do if you don't have the right rules in place. So I have a question, which is, is that consistent with the, because it seems like when you're talking about these colonial powers being extractive, and then leaving, and then these countries have been poorly, doing poorly afterwards, right? Um, is that consistent with the fact that a lot of these crashes happen decades after the colonial power leaves? Or what What would the explanation yeah, so, be? Yeah, so I, I think that the fact that they control for those original variables and finds, and they can explain all the variation and incomes across the continent, would lend itself to the idea that Yes, in fact, this sort of thing is a permanent feature. I guess probably what is ha- the, the theoretical explanation would be that the people learned how to administer government in the same way that the colonial powers administered it after they left. And so the, these colonial governments set up these institutions that could extract from people. They basically left them, but the buildings and the titles and you know the general form of government didn't go away. And so when it's picked up by different people, it remains extractive. Uh, so that I guess that would probably be the theory connecting it over time. And, you know, you, you could have varying levels of skepticism with that. The evidence does seem to bear it out, though. Yeah. So, well, I'd like to end this podcast with some hope. Yeah. Um, I, I think this current regime is going to see an imploding of their currency once again. I hope that the lesson learned by the people and others is that they have to have a stable currency. That's like one of the base foundations, this erratic, I mean, super erratic currency has led to to where it's at, but it goes deeper than that. And I think having relatively safe place, I mean, I I just, I I guess I felt maybe maybe it's just because I was ignorant, but uh, I I felt like I, I wasn't in a dangerous area like I do sometimes in various parts of Kansas City or Chicago or other big cities that I've been in. I don't, I didn't feel that way there. Um, I'm sure. And I know there are some areas that of course, like every place has, but more importantly, the educated, friendly nature of people, strong Christian faith. Uh, we, we went to church and learned, you know, some of these people look at what's happened, the, the conditions that they've had to live through in Zimbabwe. And so their faith is pretty strong because they haven't had much else uh, to bank on. And so I think if we can 
get through this current regime and maybe better institutions, I would be bullish on Zimbabwe in the future, but uh, but it's going to take some big moves and, and I don't have the answers to what that exactly looks like. So can I say something pessimistic? No, of course. Yeah, <laughs> it won't be pessimistic about Zimbabwe per se, but one of the things that, that I think the Zimbabwe experience should teach us is not just like what Zimbabweans ought to look out for, but what the rest of us should look out for. Yeah. And if you look at, if you look at what happened leading up to the 2008 currency uh, collapse in Zimbabwe, it wasn't just that they printed an enormous amount of currency. They did right before that. Also Mugabe instituted a series of land reforms, which cr- yeah. uh, cr- crashed the amount of food production in Zimbabwe. Mm. And they so- tore up the field. So I heard the, I'm glad you kind of brought that up, but I won't say much, but they literally, once they confiscated the land, they tore up the irrigation lines and the copper to, to extract, as Peter was saying, just to tear them up. And you had a totally productive irrigated field and they just ripped it all out. And now that stuff is so expensive to actually replace. Yeah. So I think there's a lesson here for any country that not only is printing large amounts of money, but also that sees is instituting policies that are resulting in in reduction of, of production. Yeah. That um, this is this is bad news, and that this trajectory goes one way. And we can also say, well, what is what did Zimbabwe try to do to get out of it? One thing that Mugabe did right prior to the two thousand eight currency collapse is he uh, passed a law making inflation illegal. <laughs> yeah. And that's not like, how about making lending illegal? I mean, that that's right. They've got to be close to a kissing cousin. The, the inflation illegal is ridiculous, but um, yeah, so outlawing lending. When these political <laughs> and economic problems actually start to really rear their head, um, yeah, the political solution ends up being more than useless. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of end on a, a faith note here. I think this verse actually connects really well uh, from the book of Proverbs, which says that precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but the foolish man devours it. Mm. I think this applies very strongly to economic policy. In fact, I think this can tell you more than good economic policy than uh, 90% of the academic articles written about it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and the other relevant thing, sorry to not end on that no, uh, uh, verse, but uh, we look at the former USSR, what we're going through today with Ukraine policies versus Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, right? Uh, so they adopted more economic freedom policies, and they're still looking pretty good and doing much better yep. than countries who don't. So that is plaguing the world in various places and something that the Gordon Institute helps to mitigate in its own little way to maybe put a small dent out there as we try to bring the good message of economic freedom out to the masses. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, Five-star rating helps other people find us. Otherwise, please uh, forward this on to your family and friends if you think they'd like to hear this episode and scroll down the list. We've been here for two and a half, three years now almost. And so there's lots of episodes out there on various topics. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.